Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, you know, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Hello and welcome to the Doing Time Show. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. This is Marissa and I'll be taking you through until 5 o'clock this evening. And a warning that there may be or there will be images, audio images of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples that have died. Hopefully we will be able to bring you an interview with Keith Munro, who is the Aboriginal co-chair, Friends of Mile Creek Memorial National Committee, grandson of Uncle of Uncle Lyle Munro Senior. And we're having a little bit of trouble getting um, organised and trying to find Keith. And I'm not sure quite what's happened. We've had some technical difficulties, but hopefully we'll be interviewing him next. And it'll be a continuation of our discussion from last week when we spoke with Cecilia Blackwell, who's also co-chair. And I'm delighted to hopefully welcome Keith onto the show today to talk about the Mile Creek Massacre also and to publicise a very special annual memorial. And we'll then interview Alan Mabry, Senior Lawyer at Environmental Justice Australia, about a very controversial bill introduced by the Andrews government, which would see Drocanian anti-protest law criminalising peaceful protests. And I think we'll just check in and see what's happening with Keith. Do you have a few children's picture books or footy boots that your kids have outgrown but want to find them a loving home? Well, drop them in at 3CR and put them in the Books and Boots bin. Books and Boots regularly sends pre-loved children's picture books and sports footwear to remote and regional First Nations communities and children across the country. Contact us at Books and Boots or go to the website www.booksandboots.org.au We love a good book. you're back with the Doing Time show and it's so wonderful to have Keith coming onto the show after all and before we speak I just wanted to give a little bit of introduction so each year hundreds of people from across the country gather on the Sunday of the June long weekend to commemorate the unprovoked massacre of at least 28 Wirra Zara's women children and old men by a group of stockmen on Mile Creek Station in 1838. And I will check that pronunciation with Keith in a minute. 
The Mole Creek Memorial on the road near Biara was erected in June 2000 by a group of Aboriginal and non-Indigenous people working together in an act of reconciliation. And indeed, in 2008, the massacre site and memorial were included on the National Heritage Register and also received New South Wales State Heritage Listing in 2010. I've always loved interviewing Keith. In fact, I really enjoyed his company. I think it might have been about a year ago where we did some work together and did an interview um, about the memorial coming up. And Cecilia was great last last week, but we wanted to also speak to um, the Aboriginal co-chair as well. Hello, Keith. Welcome to the program. Hi, how are you? Wonderful. I'm all right. Yeah, I, I just wanted to double-check that pronunciation with you, Keith, um, in terms of the lands that, that the women and children were on with the massacres. Were you right? Yep. It's a bit of a tongue twister. It is. But, but they are a clan of the Gomorrah Nation. Thank you so much. And what land are you from, yourself? The, that, that same country. The same country. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you so much for that. It, it is a bit of a tongue twister. I mean, I've, I've looked at quite a few um, lands here, and honestly, I've never been able to pronounce this one. So I've got to get yeah. better. It's, <laughs> uh, we, we have... But when, when you're looking at... Having the languages, um, like trying to interpret that within the English context is, yeah, it's probably not. Like, in the English language, there's five vowels. Um, in Gomorrah, there are long vowels and short vowels. There, you know, there's prefixes, and yeah, it's um, it, it's it's a lot to take in actually, and and to try and remember and whatnot. So, um, it's a challenge, especially for a lot of our. Um, local community members who are you know, possibly learning language for the first time or uh, having it passed on by family members. So, um, yeah, it's, you know, it's completely understandable. Language is, is just so important, isn't it, Keith? And even in regards to the fact that not only were First Nations people robbed of their language during colonisation, but, you know, I think language should be taught in schools. Indigenous language. L- language is being taught in some schools. So in New South Wales, um, um, for the very first time this year, uh, the Lombangay language has been taught up on the north coast. Um, uh, completely immersive uh, for a new school that's just opened up there. I think K to year two or three. Next year that will expand. Um, in New South Wales, there's. Um, uh, uh, legislation in support of uh, as as languages and um, um, I do agree though that there is a lot still to be done in that in that space um, especially when you think um, of the unique inherent value that it has in all of us understanding that the places in which we live work travel um, across this country you know so um yeah I, I, I 100% agree with you on that Absolutely. I mean, even when I'm travelling, say, going to a reg- regional Victoria or another part of Victoria or even another another state, I always I always want to make sure that I'm welcomed by that particular country, by that particular um, land, and it's it's just so important. I'm very sensitive to it. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It is, um, now, understanding language helps you understand the the landscape in which you're travelling. It helps you understand the, 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 the 
traditional owner groups who who care for that country. And um, I think once you dig a bit deeper, it, like looking at um, um, features in the landscape start to make sense. And that gets back to, you know, that ancient history um, and occupation in, in regards to us being, you know, the oldest continuing surviving culture on the on the on the planet, and the That's way right. in which we've managed, you know, extreme weather events, um, but also managed um, country in, in a way that has been sustainable. Exactly. Um, and I think there's a lot that we could all learn from from those from those um, um, you know understandings. You know, so yeah, absolutely. And Keith, you're you're a descendant, aren't you, of um, of the people that were massacred at Mile Creek? Could you talk to us about the you know the, the significance of what happened there, and discuss the memorial that's coming up? Yeah, I mean, Mile Creek is unique because it was the first time in our colonial history where um, perpetrators. Um, were arrested and tried in a court of law, um, and some were were, were um, uh, arrested again and retried and found guilty and were hung for their crime. Um, and it's unique in in that sense. It didn't stop massacres from occurring. Um, the an argument could be made that um, massacres probably increased across the country in, in its ferocity. Um, the condoning of of, um, of frontier violence um, was part of that larger project of um, expansion. Um, but uh, Mile Creek, we can now reflect back on and, and, and say that, you know, uh, this was one time that you know a shed of light pierced into the dark, ugly blackness of our colonial history, and um, it was the one time that good people done a good thing. And um, and when we're thinking about that in the context of frontier conflict, um, which from our records um, has been documented taking place right up to the 1930s, I think, from memory. That, that, that's a pretty um, brutal history, you know. So, um, yeah, Mile Creek's unique in that sense. Um, it's carried out by um, 12 people. 11 were um, convict or ex-convict um, workers so that rode into Mile Creek Station. Those 11 people were joined by one um, staff member from Mile Creek Station who who joined in um, the the utter violence um, that was uh, subjected to you know defenceless women, uh, children, and old men um, on that on that pretty horrific day. Um, Eleven of the twelve that carried out that massacre were arrested initially. Um, they were all acquitted within, I think, five minutes of of, um, of um, the case being arrested. Um, it was, I think, unfortunate that um, we had just a, a, a quick thinking um, 
uh, lawyer who uh, managed to uh, re-arrest seven of the perpetrators, um, George Plunkett, and he um, had those seven re-trialled um, and they uh, were then found guilty and hung. Um, that, that case um, was meant to um, provide, I suppose, a bit of um, context for Aboriginal Australia that um, you know what was happening at that time throughout the country would not be um, um, acceptable and would not go unpunished. But obviously, as you know, the history books tell you that um, continued um, indiscriminately um, for quite a number of years afterwards. I'm so glad that you were able to talk about that because I mean that's that's really really powerful. So so the, you're saying that there was acquittal, but then what what happened after that? Was there a breakthrough after that? Was anyone actually brought to justice? Well, uh, I mean there was there was quotes by uh, jury members in um, in uh, the papers at the time that quoted Germans saying, we knew they were guilty, but we were never going to see a white man hung for killing a black. Wow. I mean, I, I think that tells us all the mindset of of the day and the weight of our historical legacy. Um, um, and the, 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 I suppose, yeah, the way in which um, the colonial project was being undertaken at the time. So if, if it wasn't for, for, for the Chief Prosecutor, George Plunkett, who also has an incredible, incredible history, um, he, he helped found a number of really important institutions in Sydney. Um, and I don't think he's been given his dues, historically, in re-arresting seven of um, the 11 that were acquitted. Um, as soon as they were acquitted, they were arrested on the same day. Um, oh, that they that they they wouldn't have um, seen the justice they they received. So his quick thinking um, in re wrestling um, resulted in the retrial and um, the second trial, which brought about the guilty verdict, then resulting in in those seven being hung. So uh, they were hung in the end. Yes, those, those seven out of the eleven that were trialled. Um, oh, I see um, what you're saying. Yeah, the the only one person that um, never saw a day in court uh, was the person that actually organised the, the massacre, and he was the only free um, settler um, that, um, that that took part in the massacre. He, he was not of convict or ex-convict um, um, background, and um, unfortunately, yeah, he he never saw a day in court. Um, uh, we had a, during our 180th uh, anniversary a couple of years ago. We had descendants of of um, his family attend the memorial, and, and they spoke really beautifully um, um, at the memorial. And uh, descendants of of the survivors of the massacre embraced um, descendants of the perpetrators on that day. And um, it was yeah, it was it was really uh, a raw thing for for particular lot of the descendants of. Um, uh, the survivors and the massacres, but um, it, I think the beauty of the memorial itself is the fact that we were able to come together um, to remember the events on that day, um, whether you are 
um, a descendant of the survivors or the perpetrators or descendants of, of those that were part of um, um, the, the judicial process, because um, we've had descendants of, of those attend as well, um, or just descendants of, of um, um, you know, Australians that have, you know, built a life here in this country over one, two, three or more generations. Uh, it, it really shows the sort of the country, the way that we could deal with our history in a mature way without looking at it from a perspective of a black or white armband history of, of Australia. Um, but look at the, you know, the, the space where, where there's other hits the road, so to speak. Keith, can you imagine, I mean, you would be able to imagine, I think, or even look at the reality of the, the, the transgenerational trauma that the survivors experienced and then to come together in such a powerful way every year, even with the descendants of the people that were massacred, but also the descendants of the perpetrators, that would be just wonderful, wouldn't it, for that to happen? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, intergenerational trauma is a real thing. Um, you know, uh, for, for people to read about this in papers and whatnot, um, you know, we, we can become um, uh, desensitised to that. You know, we, we look at figures around deaths in custody or stolen generation or um, you know, various health impacts or youth suicide or, or, or this, that and the other. And, and you know, the, all those measures around closing the gap and, and, and the, they, they are all connected and linked to other things which go back to um, not just people's immediate lived experience, but their family's lived experience and their grandparents' lived experience and their great-grandparents' lived experience. And it's not until you get to look at that from not the first or the second, but the third perspective, you can understand how that trauma then gets perpetuated onto the next generation and how that manifests in different ways. And... Um, yeah, like the, the the committee done a really amazing thing when it first formed in 1998 when they first met um, at Mile Creek um, and had you know descendants of the perpetrators um, come together with descendants of the survivors um, in in the victims of the massacre and um, uh, like-minded community members to form the committee. Um, that then set aside to create the memorial, which was then launched in 2000. Fantastic. Um, since that day, it's just enabled us to create a, a meeting space to remember that story, um, a space where we can all come together and, and pay our respects. That Tell us where it is, Keith. Can you give us some details about, you know, what date, where it is? So the memorial itself is... Um, it's near a, a small town in the northern tablelands called Bingra. Um, it's uh, up in the northwest of New South Wales. Uh, the, I suppose the closest regional centres would be Tamworth and Armidale. Um, but the Mile Creek Memorial is on the Bingra to Delungra Road. It's about um, it's about five kilometres or so outside Bingra. 
um, their, their signage um, uh, on the entrances to you know, um, the, the site itself. Um, but we've we've worked really hard, the committee as a whole, um, to um, to develop the site to where it's at at the moment. Um, we've just completed a stage two building development where, um, thanks to a grant we received from um, Create New South Wales um, Regional Arts Fund, we were able to um, uh, create an amphitheatre, um, a bus and car park, amenities block. Because up until then. Um, there were no toilets out at the site, so um, uh, every Memorial Weekend we'd have to use the hall, um, uh, which was located down on the other side of Mile Creek, um, and the, we'd have to use uh, hire some portaloos and, and use the, the, the small number of um, um, uh, resources that was there. Um, yeah. But um, and then we've also created an Indigenous bush garden out there and. Um, undertaken some cultural landscaping in an, an elders shaded area. Um, so yeah, the site itself is um, is pretty special. It, get, it gets visited quite a lot um, throughout the year. Um, Pre-COVID, there was yeah. estimated yeah. around 400 people um, would be yeah. travelling there every week. Um, so it's on the long weekend, isn't it? Sorry to interrupt. Um, yeah. It's it's really great that you've given us all this detail. So it's on the long weekend, isn't it? Is that on the 13th of June that people gather? And where will they go exactly? Yeah, so the, the, the long weekend, so the, there was, the memorial itself was on Sunday the 12th of June. Beautiful, yep. Um, there, there's a community concert taking place um, on Saturday the 11th um, in Bingra at, at the Roxy Theatre. Um, uh, the special guest speaker this year is James Wilson Miller, um, who's um, who's a local historian, um, uh, author. Uh, he was um, really critical in the early history of, of Mile Creek, alongside um, a local community member from Bingara, Len Payne. Um, and so it's really great that James has been able to come full circle and be our guest speaker this year. Um, James will also be undertaking a, a a um, uh, uh, program at the University of New England in Armidale on uh, Friday the, the 10th of June, which is, um, I think it's also an online event. So people oh, the performers, um, yeah. Log into that. But um, we've tried to expand it so it, it's more than just a, a one-day event now. Yeah, um, of course. So people make yep. use of their, their time while they're up up in the... It's pretty important, isn't it? I mean, I know, I think last year the speaker was Lyndall Ryan, I believe. Yeah, yeah. yeah she, I did a, I did a quite a few interviews with her about the frontier wars and um, frontier violence. We talked quite a bit about the, the digital map. And, in fact, um, last week when we were talking with Cecilia, um, we talked about also the heritage listing as well, that it's become a yeah. heritage listing over there, yeah. Mile Creek. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we've had state and national areas listings uh, for quite some time now. But Lyndall did mention um, with her map, and it's such an important project, that um, you know she's had a, a remarkable response by Victorian communities um, throughout the state who have you know, come to her and her, her, um, her team, um, possibly identifying um, new sites to add to that, to that map, which is just amazing. And, and that, that's the thing that you know, we'd, we'd like to think um, as a country, this is the place that we're at at the moment, that we're mature enough as a country to have these conversations. Um, 
and not look at it from one extreme perspective or another. It's like this is our history. Like you can't change that history. Let's just create a space where we can talk about it like adults. I'm so glad you've mentioned um, Victoria because um, well, we we actually um, doing time show is actually based in three CR is actually based in Melbourne, mm. um, and we it's really important that there's massacres added everywhere, you know, all over Australia. But Victoria has had very few up until recently, I think. I, 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 I... I think there has been a lot more that's been added from the talk. And and that's that's really amazing because that tells me that as a state, like you you are, <laughs> are leading the way in, in this space, you know, that you've got the the, the, the the Trade Commission down there. Um uh, I, I think there's a lot that we can all learn. Um as other people in other states. There's so much work to be done, though. There's so much work to be done. Mm. Keith, um, before you go, do you want to just... Um, I also wanted to honour your um, your grandfather, Uncle Lyle Munro. Can you say a few words about him? Uh, what do you... Yeah, yeah. He, he, was, he was an amazing man. Um, he... He taught me a lot as a, as a person in life. Um, he's a big loss still to our family. Um, he was a really important leader of our people. Um, uh, missed very much, very much still to this day. Um, you know, he 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 taught the world of of the Mark Creek community. Um, and uh, I'm just happy to carry on the work that he's created, and um, you know, follow those instructions that he that he passed on to me, and and hope that uh, we're all doing him proud, and not just him, but all of. We've lost a lot of um, direct descendants um, over the last 12 months, which has been really hard because um, obviously stage two has been really important, which is you know what we've just completed, but. Stage three is where we're heading, which is the actual building of a permanent space on the site. Good. And um, it, it makes me sad that they won't get to see that in their lifetime. Um, and that's why it's really, it's really sharpened my focus to try and get this done as a priority now so that you know, our elders you know, get to see that in, in the flesh you know, before it's time for them to go... To the to the dream time and and um, yeah, hopefully you know carry out their wishes and and see their their dreams for that building come to fruition. So yeah, and I'm hoping that will happen very soon and that we can all support each other to to mm. do that work. I mean, it is reconciliation week. We haven't had time to really talk about that, but really, I think you and I have have conducted our own our own. Um, reconciliation event today during our interview and look reconciliation means means a lot to some aboriginal people and for some aboriginal people it means nothing a lot of mm. aboriginal people do not um you know will will celebrate things in different ways yeah yeah and uh, we we get i mean our, our 
the Aboriginal experience is very different, and yeah. you know it's very it's localized. It's um, you know I come from this very staunch family, um, very proud and vocal, and you know very upfront, and um, also quite comfortable in being critical about things as well. So um, I completely understand that perspective, and I mean for me as as a as a co-chair of this committee, it's just important that um, you know we continue to do the, the work that we we have done, um, and to make sure that we're all heading in the same direction um, as a committee. And and that that's the, the wonderful thing about our committee. We you know it's made up of fifty percent Aboriginal, fifty percent non-Aboriginal people. Yeah, an Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal co-chair. Um, but if if and it's never happened, but if there is a, a case where the the decision on a, an item is split 50-50, we have in our constitution that um, the decision will rest with the Aboriginal voice. Sure. And, and th- that's the amazing thing about, you know, the work of our committee. We 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 do things as, as a whole and, um, and you know, that work, you know, we, we've been able to achieve some amazing things so far and, um, yeah, um, look forward to continuing that over the next few years. And I look forward to, to chatting with you further. The Do and Time show has had a very, very long tradition of not only commemorating um, events such as these and anniversaries, but also um, having all communities, in particular First Nations people, to tell their stories. And I'm so honoured to have you here, Keith. Are there any final comments that you want to make before we finish? Um no, I mean, I'm really excited. We we get a lot of school kids that um, travel to the memorial every year from Queensland. We I think we do have some schools travelling up from Victoria this year, um, and that 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 used to make my grandfather and particularly all of our elders really proud because in regards to the Queensland group, they're already on holidays. I don't know if you realise this, but they're on holidays during that first week of the long weekend. So for those kids to give up their holidays, to come down to the memorial and participate in in the the memorial event is pretty amazing. And it says a lot to me about about, um, the school, um, the culture that has been driven in those schools, but also yeah. the parents of those kids that are travelling down. And um, um, I, I really think that um, you know, with with more and more awareness of, of the memorial event, uh, more people travelling up to the memorial um, from all over the country, I, I hope that that starts a conversation um, when people are travelling um, um, back home, you know, about um, what's happening as changemakers. Very much a change makers. That's a great word. Keith, thank you so much for coming onto the program. It's been great having you. Is it okay if I invite you again later on in the year to give a little bit of a report back? Yeah, that's fine. That'd be great. All right, Keith. Well, thank you so much. You take care of yourself. Same. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Bye bye. Thanks, Bye bye. Bye. Three C R. Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical, community-owned media during our Radiothon. We'll be taking donations online, over the phone and in the station to help keep 3CR going for another year. Independent community media is vital and we need your support to keep community strong. 
The 3CR Radiothon kicks off in June. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au, call the station on 03-9419-8377 or drop in at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy during business hours. 3CR, keep Keep community community strong. Back with the Doing Time show, and we're going to be speaking pretty soon with Alan Maybury, who is the senior lawyer at Environmental Justice Australia. But before we do, I just wanted to um, acknowledge that we've just had an interview with Keith Munro, who talked a lot about the Mile Creek massacre, and um, we commemorated a memorial that was happening this year. Environmental Justice Australia and the Human Rights Law Centre are urging the Andrews government to withdraw a draconian proposed new law that would criminalise peaceful protest. The Sustainable Forest Timber Amendment Timber Harvesting Safety Zones Bill 2022 was introduced by the Victorian government last week and would see protesters who are attempting to prevent native forest logging in Victoria face fines of up to 21,000 or 12 months in jail. I'll give a little bit of intro and I wanted to welcome um, Alan to the show. I'm actually a forest defender myself and have had a history of blockading um, over quite a few years and I'm now kind of taking a little bit of a backseat to the blockading for now, for now, and, um, and I'm doing media about this very important topic, the Doing Time show um, is also providing a vehicle for this interview because of the fact that, you know, obviously if people are going to be in prison, they, they're, that's a, a ridiculous thing under these circumstances, criminalisation. Hello, Ellen. Welcome to the program. Hi, Marissa. Nice to join you from Wurundjeri country this afternoon. Thank you so much. Yes, um, Alan, I'm wondering if you could just talk about what on earth is going on with the Victorian government and... Tell us what's, give us a bit of background about what's going on. Yeah, definitely, Marissa. So, I mean, the context is in the the face, really, of recent catastrophic bushfires and, you know, we're seeing our climate and ecosystems collapse before our eyes. Really, the right to protest illegal logging is something that we need to protect. But um, at the moment, we're seeing context where Vic Forest is facing nine court cases brought by the community But instead of regulating the logging industry and cracking down on illegal logging, the Victorian government is trying to introduce um, extraordinary new penalties and possible jail time to stop concerned citizens from protesting. Um, Really, we see this as a politically motivated crackdown on legitimate political expression. Um, That's sort of the context in which this bill has come about. I find that really surprising, given that there are already laws in place to to deal with um, with crime. And it sounds to me as though the Andrews government is really embarking on, you know, protecting the commercial interests of the logging industry. That's exactly right, Marissa. And I, I mean, the the act is already in place. So the bill is to amend the Act to increase some of the fines and and penalties in the legislation. Um, The the media... Oh, hang on, there's a train coming. Oh, I'm actually doing this show remotely outside. (laughs) And 
outside on a balcony in regional Victoria. <laughs> okay, go on. Sorry, Ellen. Yep. No, no problem at all. Uh, yeah. I um, yeah, was just saying, you know, this legislation already exists and the bill is really to amend it to um, introduce tougher and harsher penalties than those that are already in legislation. Um, I mean, the uh, media release from the government refers to health and safety um, concerns as the impetus for making the changes, but um, as other media is reporting, there, there hasn't um, been any sort of evidence provided that that actually is a, um, an issue that needs changes made to the legislation that already exists. So this is a draft law at the moment, is it, which which is marking the continuation of, of quite an alarming trend, isn't it? Yes, that's correct, a trend that we're seeing in other states as well. Um, but that's right, Marissa, so it was um, draft a draft bill that was presented last week in Parliament and debate has been um, held over to the 8th of June. And this is in Victoria you're talking about? That's correct, yes. I think in Tasmania there was a similar law, but that was squashed, wasn't it? That's right. My understanding is that that um, process is still ongoing and there's been a number of attempts in Tasmania to introduce similar um, legislation and similar concerns raised there. This is actually most disturbing given that there have been um, protesters going to the forests over many years. And, and I suppose I, I really also wanted to make the distinction here, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Ellen, and that is that when we talk about the, log, the logging industry, we're not necessarily talking just about the workers. We're talking about the logging, logging industry and the rich um, multinationals at the top, aren't we? Yeah, that's correct. I mean, the legislation isn't making any distinction and um, it's, you know, really just applying to particular areas set aside for logging. And, um, you know, some of the offences where we're, the bill is proposing increased penalties are things such as entering one of those areas. Okay, so, so the bill was, or, the timber bill was already in existence. That's preposterous. So they wanted yeah. they wanted to actually add on about criminalisation of protests. There's nothing in there about that. Yeah. So if it's helpful, I'm happy to sort of give a summary. Please, that would be changes, amazing. Yeah. Thank you, so, Ellen. I mean, one of the main changes being proposed is that uh, people who effectively aim to prevent logging in those logging areas can now face up to 12 months jail time or a $21,000 fine. Um, but for a lot of other more minor offences where fines used to be $3,000, the proposed change is to increase those to $10,000. And those are um, activities such as entering one of the timber harvesting areas, remaining there, possessing a prohibited thing, uh, allowing a dog to enter those areas. Um, so there's some of the sort of main changes around fines, but then there are also... Um, matters like uh, PVC and metal pipes being added to the prohibited items list in the legislation and also some increased powers for authorised officers under the legislation. So a power now to be able to search bags and vehicles and to be able to ban people for areas from areas for up to a month. Uh, so, 
you know, the existing legislation's there, but these changes are really, really increasing the penalties and um, offences within the legislation. Definitely a crackdown on legitimate political um, expression. And so what what's um, the position of Environmental Australia and what's some of the work that it's doing at the moment to combat that? Yeah, so um, our position, uh, I guess, initially is set out in our media release that we put out last week with the Human Rights Law Centre is that um, really these... Um, this legislation is really a crackdown on legitimate political expression and the the bill should um, should be withdrawn by the Andrews government and abandoned and instead they should be focusing on properly regulating the logging industry and cracking down on illegal logging. Really, that's where their energy should be focused. So um, from our end, we're continuing to... Um, advocate and get that message out there and we just today have launched a petition on our website that people can head to our website and, and sign that And what is the website? Sorry, what's the website? Oh, sorry, can you just tell us the website? Yeah, sure. It's envirojustice, or one word, .org.au. Oh, you're still there? Yes, can you hear me, Marissa? Yeah, you just cut out. So, Enviro, ah, so sorry. Tell me the website again. That's it's right. envirojustice.org.au. Yep. Envirojustice.org.au. So basically, I mean, as of now, Vic Forest is facing nine court cases brought by the community. I wonder if, if Daniel Andrews knows that. I would hope that he is aware of that, yes. But, um, yeah, I think that's really the extraordinary thing here is that um, the community is having to step in to bring Vic Forest, which is a state-owned um, entity, to account for illegal logging. Absolutely. Yeah, look, the reason why I invited you on the show, Alan, is really not only to, to talk about the, the, the forest, but also to draw attention to listeners. We've actually got um, a listenership inside um, of, of people in prison and we look a lot at that, particularly women in prison and First Nations people who, as you know, are overrepresented mm. um, in incarceration. And, you know, prison the prison experience is is very ugly. And I'm really quite surprised, you know, that that the Victorian government is is considering this situation. Um, it's very hypocritical given that the Victorian government talks a lot about treaty and talks a lot about the the rights of First Nations people and yet they're wanting to put in penalties to forests and, and also um, lock children up as well. Yeah, I, I agree, Marissa. I mean, really what we're seeing is that people are seeing what's happening to our climate and ecosystems and seeing that no action is being taken against logging companies and so acting themselves to protect those ecosystems and really rather than address address that key issue, exactly what you're saying, that this proposed legislation is um, potentially leading to imprisonment for individuals which, as you've touched on, you know, then flows onto a huge raft of, of consequences for individuals and for society. It's such an act of, of 
absolute betrayal, absolute betrayal to to specifically to Aboriginal people. And, you know, I, I'm quite disgusted. Can you tell us a little bit about Environmental Australia and what some of the work that it does? Yeah, happily, Marissa. So we're a, um, a donor-funded organisation that um, really is working with um, community groups to um, commence legal proceedings and undertake other um, public policy and other work to really fight for protection of our environment. So we work um, in spaces like climate change, coal and um, ecosystems, which is where this, this work that we're talking about now falls. Okay. Fantastic. Yeah, um, thank you so much for coming onto the program. It's, it's, it's been lovely to have you, Ellen. And oh, I'm wondering if you've got any final comments to make before we finish. Yeah, I mean, I really would just like to reiterate that... Um, Really what we're seeing is a failure of the government to regulate the logging industry um, and that this, this bill that has been introduced is proposing extremely harsh criminal penalties and what we're see saying is a politically motivated crackdown on legitimate uh, political expression. And so we would ask people to visit our website and uh, sign our petition and watch there for further updates as we um, continue to and raise the message about the the real intentions behind this bill and um, and we'll keep people updated that way, Marissa. Thank you so much, Ellen. Thank, thanks, thanks a lot for that. Cheers. Bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. Hi, we're the Marindas and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855am. Why? 
the doing time show and that was um breathe in breathe out breathe out by Thelma Plum who's a lovely um indigenous musician I was just um getting lost in the music there it's been a quite a <laughs> quite a um an interesting show today lots of really strong things that came up and it's approximately 4:51, and we're nearing the end of our show wanted to thank both Keith and Alan for coming on to the show today, and yeah, um, pretty soon we'll be we'll be finishing. But I just wanted to just talk about Radiothon very briefly again, and give a little bit of a, a bit of information for listeners prior to Radiothon. So the theme for Radiothon at the moment is, is for this year is keep communities strong. And so we've got the Community Language Radiothon, which is starting on the 6th of June and ending on the 12th of June. And then the General Radiothon is from the 13th to the 19th of June. 
and you've got the Gardening Radiothon show, which starts on the 26th of, of June as well. And with the Do and Time show specifically, we have $850 to raise for our target. And last year it was a little bit difficult to, to raise that money. Um, it, we've actually met our target for, for many years now. But I think um, we'll just let that train go past. Yeah, so, you know, it's it's been, um, you know, okay with reaching the target. But last year, I think, because of the pandemic and because there was a lot of, I think, of a financial hardship that's happened to a lot of our communities, in particular with the Do and Time show, we actually um, work with a lot of, of marginalised communities and look at the people that have been targeted by the police and a lot of vulnerable communities as well. So I'm wondering if people can dig deep into their pockets today or um, on the, the 13th of June when our Radiothon is on and and see if they can donate. It's tax deductible. Um, the, the donation would be tax deductible. So, yeah, it's, it's 3CR's proudly community-owned and... We've been on air since 1976, and which is a massive achievement, really, made possible by years of community fundraising. And this year, the target for 3CR overall is $250,000, and it takes a lot of collective effort to reach this this goal. And to get there, we need all of your your help, um, and hopefully, we can we can reach that target. So donate to all shows at 3CR and specifically, as I said, the Do and Time show needs to stay on air for another year and the target is $850 this year. So we'll be back next week at the same time from 4 to 5pm for the Do and Time show and thanks again to our, our lovely people, our lovely guests that came today, very special people. Um and we've done extended interviews for both Keith and Alan. And if people, I'm hoping, will rock up to the Mile Creek Memorial to commemorate the, um, the the massacre that happened in the 1800s. So it's goodbye from Marissa, and um, stay tuned for the next show, which is um, Climate Action, coming up. And stay strong and well and look after each other. And, and of course, even though there's no lockdown, we're still in a pandemic. Um, Communities, particularly Aboriginal communities, are very under-resourced. And it's so important to look after each other um, and and do the right thing. So goodbye from Marissa for sure now. (laughs) And stay tuned every Monday from 4 to 5 for the Do and Time show. We're going to be going out now with our theme song, Blackfella, Whitefella, by the Rumpy Band. Bye. Fellow. All the people of different races with different 
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.